All right. Well, good morning, church. Is my mic on? Can you hear me? All right. Well, listen, if you're new here today, my name is Will, and uh, I serve as one of the elders and pastors here at the church. And so if you're here in the room or you're watching online or if you're over at the Carville campus, we just want you to know that we love you and we are so grateful for you. Now, this morning, we are starting a brand new five-week series called Eight, The Greatest Chapter. And what we are doing in this series is we are working our way through section by section, verse by verse, through Romans chapter 8. Now, before we jump in this morning, what I want to do is I want to give you some background. So if you're new to the Bible and you have no idea what the book of Romans is, let me give you some background. The book of Romans is not actually a book, it's a letter. And it's a letter written by a guy named Paul, and he wrote the letter to a group of Christians, a group of Jesus followers who lived in and around the city of Rome. Now, here's the thing. You might not know this, but uh, Paul, his spiritual gift is being a pen pal, all right? So he actually writes a lot of letters. The majority of the New Testament is actually letters from Paul to different groups of Christians throughout the Roman Empire. But what makes the letter to the Romans so unique is actually two very specific things. The first thing is that it is easily the longest and most comprehensive letter that Paul ever wrote. As a matter of fact, many of the themes that he brings up in this letter, Paul actually brings up in other letters. But this is the letter where he most unpacks, most explains, and most applies those themes. Another thing that makes the book of Romans or the letter to the Romans unique is that it is one of the few letters that Paul wrote to a group of Christians that he had no prior relationship with. A lot of people don't know that, but most of the letters that Paul writes is to people that he has a relationship with. But the gospel or the, not the gospel, the letter to the Romans is unique because Paul is actually writing to a group of people that he had no prior relationship with. At some point he would meet them because history tells us that Paul ends up dying in Rome. But what we see here is that at this point he had no relationship with them. But here's actually why I appreciate that. Because out of all the letters that Paul writes, it's probably the least pastoral of all of them. It's a very theological letter because he doesn't know anybody. And so he's writing to them in order to explain the gospel to them. And so praise be to God for that because then now we have a letter that is comprehensive and unpacks the gospel. Not necessarily uh, from the pastor's perspective, but from a theologian's perspective. Out of all of his letters, this one is easily the most strategic because he knew that these believers were at the epicenter of the known world. See, Rome was like New York or Los Angeles. It was the epicenter. So for those of you who think Memphis is the epicenter, I apologize, Uh, but it is not, okay? So so being from Chicago, I laugh when people are like, yeah, the big city. I'm like, that's not a big city. but so, so Paul here has to be very strategic because he knew that he is writing to these believers who are at the epicenter, of the epicenter of the known world. In other words, in order to change the world for Christ, he knew that he would first have to change Rome for Christ. If, if Rome changed, then the entire world would change as well. So if there was ever a time when Paul wanted to clearly explain, unpack, and apply the gospel, it was now, and by the grace of God, that is exactly what he did, and we are still benefiting from that today. 
So my hope is that one day we will actually go verse by verse, section by section through the book of Romans. But y'all ain't ready for that. And so what we're going to do instead is we are going to work our way verse by verse, section by section through Romans chapter 8. Now here's the thing. In this series, as we tackle and address some pretty heavy topics, some pretty heady subjects, there might be some questions that come up, right? You might be sitting here, and as, as we're working our way through this, this series, you know, one of the things that makes this series, uh, every time I say series, Siri thinks I'm saying Siri, but um, as we work our way through this series, one of the things that we have to be aware of is that this actually is a very monumental series in the history of High Point, okay? And here's what I mean. There's never been in the history of our church five weeks on one chapter of the Bible, And so as we go through this chapter of the Bible, there might be questions that come up. There might be things that you're like, man, what does he mean by sanctification? What does he mean by justification? What does he mean by propitiation? And there might be questions that that, that are personal to you, and you're like, man, I get what Paul's saying, but what does that actually look like in my life? If, If any of those questions come up throughout this series, what I would love for you to do is text Romans 8, text your question to Romans 8 to the number 97000. When you text Romans 8 to the number 97000, what you will do is your question will come to us, and then the hope is every week for me to take the questions that people ask and to film my answer to your questions. And so then every week you will be getting a newsletter, and in the newsletter, through the email, we will be answering the questions that you have. It'll be on social media as well. And and the hope for this, the reason why we are doing this is because I want to make sure that I'm not just preaching through Romans 8, but I am pastoring people through Romans 8. So if at any point you have a question, do not hesitate to text that number. Someone's already reaching out. Um, (laughs) So this morning, we will be looking at and unpacking, we are starting this series by looking at and unpacking the first 11 verses of Romans chapter 8. So we are looking at Romans 8 verses 1 through 11. And this morning, we're going to look at and unpack this passage under three headings. We're going to begin this morning by looking at the reality of condemnation. And then after we look at the reality, we're going to look at the symptoms of condemnation. And then we're going to conclude by looking at the removal of condemnation. So the reality of it, the symptoms of it, and the removal of it. So this morning, we're beginning by looking at the reality. In verse 1, look what Paul writes in Romans chapter 8. He says, there is therefore now no condemnation. Everybody say no condemnation. condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, the word condemnation in the Greek is actually a legal term, and it was a term that was used in the courtrooms in Paul's day. It is a combination of two words in the Greek. It is the word kata krino. Two words combined, kata krino. The word kata means against, and the word krino means to judge. So essentially, the word kata krino, condemnation, here's what it means. It means to judge against someone or to find someone guilty. But what's interesting about this word is that it doesn't just carry a verdict. It actually carries a certain type of sentencing. The word condemnation, it implies the death sentence. Okay? So so when the Bible uses the word condemnation, it's not talking about three months probation. It says that if you are condemned, you are on 
the death sentence. There is a death sentence, and you will receive the death penalty. Not probation, but a death penalty. So the first thing that I want you to see in this first point is I want you to see the reality of condemnation. Here's what I mean. The fact that Paul uses the word now, don't miss that. I'm going to reread it. There is therefore now, okay? The fact that Paul uses the word now, what it implies is that there was condemnation before. You tracking with me? He, he uses the word now because there's now no condemnation, but there was before, okay? So the reason why the good news of verse 1 doesn't impact us as much, as much as it should is because we don't really understand the bad news. I'm going to go ahead and say that again, okay? Because y'all not with me yet. The reason why the good news of verse 1 does not impact us the way that it should is because we don't understand the bad news. So here's the bad news. The bad news is that because of sin, we are all, and by all I mean all, we are all born under condemnation. We are all born under kata krino. You and I are sinners by nature and by choice. By nature and by choice. We are sinners by nature because of Adam. We are sinners by choice because of us. But it's not just Paul who says this. It's actually all throughout the Old and New Testaments. We see this again and again. In Psalm 51, verse 5, this is what David writes. He has just sinned against Bathsheba. He is confessing his sin to God. You would think that he would just be confessing the sin he had just committed. But in his confession, here's what David says, for I was born a sinner. I was born a sinner. Yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. And so if there's a baby in your life, oh, they're so cute. No, they're sinners. That's what they are. Amen, Amen right? I'm preaching to somebody. So, so I don't know about you, but my daughters have never, ever, ever said, no, you know what, sister? No, you have it. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't want it. You can have it. I haven't heard it. That's Psalm 51. In John chapter 3, John gives us the, the most known verse in all the Bible. John 3, 16, right? Man, what a hopeful verse. The problem is no one ever reads verses 17 and 18. Look what it says. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Man, what a, that is awesome. Verse 17, though. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. There's that Greek word, condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. Is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So Jesus says that whoever does not believe stands condemned already. But don't miss that. What he is saying is that for those who believe in him, condemnation is no longer on them. But if you don't believe in Jesus, condemnation stands already. You're already under condemnation. It was already there. He says, if you don't believe in me, that's fine. But if you don't believe in the Son that I have sent, then you stand condemned already. In other words, 
Condemnation is not the exception, but the rule. Then finally, in Romans 7, the chapter right before this, we see Paul in anguish because he is struggling with the inner battle of wanting to do the right thing but not being able to do it. And at the end of his tirade, he is so overwhelmed that he cries out, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? So what we see is this. Once you start to understand the biblical concept of condemnation, The question is no longer, why does anyone go to hell? But the question all of a sudden becomes, how does anyone make it to heaven? I'm going to let you sit in that for a little bit. So now some of you might be offended by what I'm saying. And I want you to know, this is kind of a side note, I I don't care. Some of you might be offended by what I'm saying because you're thinking, this guy doesn't even know me. Who is he to tell me that I am a condemned sinner? I am a good and decent person who tries my best every single day. Well, the problem with that is that Paul here actually has a rebuttal for those people who don't think the problem is that bad and who then assume they can save themselves by being moral people. In verse 3 of Romans 8, he writes, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. In other words, God came to do it because the law couldn't do it. Paul says that the reason why Jesus had to come and save you is because the law could not save you. In other words, the the, the law reveals your sin, but it cannot remove it. The, The law exposes your sin, but it doesn't expiate your sin. But notice what Paul says here. He doesn't say that there's anything wrong with the law per se. If you look at what he says, the problem is not the law. Because he says in verse 3, I'm going to read it again in case you missed it. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh. The the, the problem isn't the law. The problem is you and me. The law of God is perfect, it says in the Old Testament. We're the ones that messed it up. We have weakened the law by the flesh. In other words, the problem is not the law. The problem is us. Now, this line of reasoning goes totally against what the world believes. The world believes that all of our problems are external and that all of our solutions are internal. So you go to any secular counselor, you listen to any politician, and the world will tell you that your greatest problem is not you, it's your family of origin. Your your greatest problem is not you, it's, it's your birth order. Your greatest problem is not you, it's, it's the economy, it's the government, it's the other political party, whoever's on the other side of the aisle, they're the problem. It's not you. Man, man, it's dumb. It's not you, it's your boss. It's, it's not you, it's your, it's your race, it's your, it's your gender, it's your, it's your lack of opportunities. It's, that's not you. It's never you. And because the problem is always out there in the world's eyes, the solution is always in here. And so the world says all you need is more self-esteem, more self-help, more self-care, more self-awareness, more selfies, more self-image. The problem with all those words is the word self. Listen, you cannot be the solution 
when you are the problem. Paul argues that since our ultimate problem is condemnation, our only solution is salvation. Now listen, my goal here is not to depress anyone. My goal here is to show you just how serious our condition actually is. Get this. If you don't acknowledge the bad news, you will never appreciate the good news. If you don't acknowledge our condemnation, then you will never appreciate his salvation. And one of the issues with the modern church today is that it's so focused on what Jesus saved us for that they overlook what Jesus has saved us from. But here's the problem with churches that overlook and skirt around the bad news. Without a clear, honest diagnosis, the life-giving cure ends up falling on deaf ears and on hard hearts. Listen to this. Since the problem isn't that bad, then the solution isn't that great. And so you end up getting TED Talks instead of sermons. Since the problem isn't that bad, then the solution isn't that great. So solutions end up being steps, not salvation. Application, not atonement. Self-help and not salvific hope. So we end up overestimating what we do because we have underestimated what he's done. Why? Because when we overlook the bad news, we end up undervaluing the good news. So that's just my first point. That is the reality of condemnation. So now that we've looked at the reality of it, what I want to do in this second point is I want to look at the symptoms of condemnation. In other words, in this point, I want you to see me as WebMD. I am going to diagnose. You can call me WillMD if, if, if that floats your boat. And I'm going to help diagnose your symptoms of condemnation. The symptoms of condemnation are found in verses 2 through 8. Look what it says in verse 2. It says, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Stop there in verse four for a second. This is not even a, a, a point I'm making, but I just need you to just hear the good news for a second. In verse four, it says, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, not by us, but in us, okay? That's the gospel, by the way. Not by us, but in us. Then, verse 5, I'll, leave, I'll reread verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You see, the problem with overlooking the reality of condemnation is that you end up misdiagnosing the symptoms of it. When you overlook the reality of condemnation, 
you end up misdiagnosing the symptoms of condemnation. As a matter of fact, I would argue that most Christians and all non-Christians are struggling with the effects of condemnation, and they don't even realize it. Now, you might be asking, wait, hold 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 up. How can a Christian experience condemnation? The text says that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Well, here's my response to that. Just because a Christian can potentially live a no-condemnation life, it doesn't mean that they are practically living a no-condemnation life. Even though no-condemnation is an objective reality for many Christians, it is not a subjective experience. And I would argue from my own personal and pastoral experience that many believers, many Christians, walk around life with a low-grade, low-level condemnation that they can't turn off. It's like a soundtrack that just keeps playing and playing and playing and playing. So then the question is, how can we know if we are struggling with these symptoms? How do we know if condemnation is a struggle that we have? Well, according to verses 5 through 8, Paul argues that the way you can diagnose yourself is by looking at how you think. How you think will tell you whether or not you are struggling with condemnation. I'm going to read it again because I want you to see how often Paul brings up the idea of thinking or the mind. Verse 5, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Now, you would think he'd be done with the thinking thing, the mind thing, right? No, verse, verse 6, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. In verse 7, here's the mind again. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. So according to Paul, because he brings it up multiple times in three verses, one of the ways that you can determine if you are experiencing the symptoms of condemnation is by looking at how you Think. Your thinking will tell you if you are struggling with condemnation. Now, here's something that I want you to keep in mind, okay? No pun intended. As I work through these symptoms, if as I walk through these symptoms, if you have any or all of these symptoms, then it means one of two things. You either are a Christian that has forgotten the gospel or you are a non-Christian that has never embraced the gospel. So, as if, as I, so just, just so you know, as I walk through these symptoms, if you struggle with these symptoms, you're either a Christian that has forgotten the gospel or you are a non-Christian that has never believed it to begin with. Either way, I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond at the end, okay? So here are the symptoms. There are three. The first symptom of someone who is struggling with condemnation is they have deficient thinking. Or another way to put it is they have absent-minded thinking. They don't, they don't think enough. Here's how we know, because in verse 5 through 6, Paul brings up the idea of setting your mind on something. And, and the phrase there in the Greek, to set your mind on something, it means to ponder something. It means to fix your attention on something. It means to let your mind dwell on something. In other words, what we see is that it requires effort. It requires intentionality in order for you to keep your mind set on the things of the Spirit. If you don't do it, you won't experience life in peace. Practically, even though you have them positionally. He says it requires for you to ponder. It requires for you to intentionally and regularly fix your attention on something. 
So in order to experience life in peace, we must actively be setting our minds on the spirit. But here's what's so funny about this. So often, one of the reasons why people don't come to Christianity is because they're thinkers. I'm a thinker. Man, I would love to believe all that Jesus stuff, but man, I'm a thinker. I'm just too smart. I've read too much, and I'm a thinker. What can I say? Well, according to this passage, Paul says that the reason why you're not a Christian is not because you think too much, but because you think too little. The reason why you're struggling with condemnation is not because you're thinking too much, but because you're not thinking enough. Christianity doesn't want you to turn your brain off. It wants you to turn your brain on. It wants you to think through the implications of the gospel. But since we don't think enough and we don't study enough, our poor theology results in poor praxology. So for example, let me give you some examples of what deficient thinking looks like, absent-minded thinking looks like. There are two types of people in this room, right? There, There are some people who on the one extreme... They think they are too bad for God to forgive them. So there's people in the room right now, right now, and you think you are too bad for God to forgive you. That's one extreme. At the same time, in this same room, there are people who think they are too good for God to condemn them. So some think they're too bad for God to forgive them, and some think they're too, bad for God, they're too good for God to condemn them. The problem is, is that even though they look very different on the surface, the one thing that those individuals have in common is deficient thinking. They haven't thought about it enough. Because if you think about it enough, the person who thinks they're too bad is affirmed by the good news of the gospel. And the person who thinks they're too good is humbled by the bad news of the law. But even though they look very different, they both struggle with deficient thinking. And because they haven't thought about it, they are struggling with condemnation. Another example of this deficient thinking is Christians who uh, confuse condemnation with things that are common to the Christian life. So, So here's what I mean. In the passage, it says that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But but don't miss this. It doesn't say that there's no mistakes. It doesn't say that there's no doubt. It doesn't say that there's no sin. It doesn't say that there's no suffering. It doesn't say that there's no temptation. It doesn't say that there's no failure. It says that there's no condemnation. But the problem is when we don't know what condemnation is, then we start to assume that everything is condemnation. And the two most dangerous things to confuse with condemnation are consequences and conviction. Consequences and conviction. Let me explain each. The first thing that this passage doesn't say is that it doesn't say that there are no consequences for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because according to Galatians 6, 7 through 8, it says that all people will reap what they what? So. It is a general principle that is true for believers and non-believers. So if you sow to sin, you will reap sin. But once that happens, we must never assume that God is allowing us to experience, we must never, we will never assume that God allowing us to experience our consequences is the same as God punishing us with condemnation. So there are people in the room right now, and what you are struggling with is consequences because you sowed sin. Then the consequences show up, and you're like, oh, God's condemning me. No, he's not. 
He's allowing you to experience the consequences for the decisions that you made. He's allowing you to reap what you planted. But there's a difference between condemnation and consequences. But when people don't think enough, they think they are one and the same. Another thing that it doesn't say is it doesn't say that there is no conviction for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are a believer, there is no condemnation, but you better believe there is conviction. If you're a believer, there's a big difference between condemnation and conviction. There's a major difference between condemnation and conviction. And the difference is this, is that if you're a believer, condemnation is from Satan and conviction is from the Spirit. Condemnation attacks your identity. Conviction addresses your activity. Condemnation keeps you in your guilt, and conviction leads you back to grace. Don't ever confuse conviction with condemnation. Here's the thing, because sometimes you can almost know too much. Sometimes you can almost have too much theology. So, so I'll give you an example from my own life. I, over the past few months, as I've been praying and, and, and just having my devotional time with the Lord. The, the Holy Spirit has been convicting me of, of certain things that I've done in my past job, certain people that I have to apologize to, certain people who I have to forgive. But what's interesting is that because I know my Bible, I'm like, no, nah, this, is, this is condemnation from the enemy. The enemy's trying to make me feel bad. No, nah, I'm not doing it. You're not going to get me, Satan. And then one night the Holy Spirit was like, no, nah, brother, it ain't Satan. It's me. <laughs> this ain't condemnation. This is conviction. Go do what I'm telling you to do. See? So sometimes you can know too much. Sometimes you can be too theological. And you can talk your way out of obeying. The other symptom, the second symptom of someone who is struggling with condemnation is religious thinking. It's not just deficient thinking, it's religious thinking. Now, here's the thing. Based on how Paul writes here in the passage, you would think that the people who are trying to live according to the flesh are the sinful people, the, the wicked people who are rebelling against God. Well, that could be, but that's not the only people that Paul is describing, and, and here's why. Because according to the text, those who walk in the flesh can also be those people who are trying to keep the law in their own strength. And like we've learned from the prodigal series, there are actually two ways that you can avoid God. There are actually two ways that you can avoid the gospel. You can, you can avoid the gospel by being really, really bad, the prodigal, rebellion, or you can avoid the gospel by being really, really good, the elder brother, religion. So some people avoid the gospel through rebellion, and others avoid the gospel through religion. And so when it says that there are those who live according to the flesh, that doesn't just mean the wicked people. It's not just the tax collectors. It's the Pharisees that are being described. So how do you know if you are exhibiting this symptom? How do you know if you are struggling with religious thinking? Well, one of the ways you can tell is by how you view the law of God. How do you view the law of God? Listen, if you start assuming that you can keep the law of God in your own strength, if that is the lie that you believe every morning you wake up, then what that means is you actually have a low view of the law and condemnation is right around the corner. 
Remember what we said during the prodigal series? We said that the older brother, it seemed like the elder brother had a high view of the law. But you, if you think you can keep the law of God, then that means you don't have a high view of the law. The people who have a high view of the law are the people who admit they can't keep it. And so what we see is if you are someone who is every day because of the way you're wired, you are just wake up and like, I got this. Today's going to be the day. Today's going to be the day that I don't need grace. Today's going to be that day. And by the time you get to lunch, tomorrow's going to be the day. <laughs> That's what we see here. That, that, that when, when we overlook verse 3, which is what Jesus has done, uh, we end up underappreciating verse 1. We, when we overlook that the law couldn't save us, verse 3, we underappreciate that Jesus did save us, verse 1. That's, that's the danger here, guys. You see, the shadow side, listen to this, the shadow side of taking credit for the good behavior is that then you have to take condemnation for the bad behavior. Has anyone ever told you that? I don't, I don't know if they have. See, see the, the shadow side to taking credit for the good stuff is that then you have to take condemnation for the bad stuff. Now, now, let me tell you a little bit about my story. When I became a believer when I was 18. And for some of you in the room, you're like, well, that's pretty young. Like, you, you, you came to know Jesus pretty early on. Well, here's the thing. Even though I only lived 18 years B.C., I did a lot of work in those 18 years, okay? I, did, I made up for a lifetime of sin in those 18 years. And so one of the things that happened to me as a result of my behavior is that when I came to know Jesus, there was a lot of guilt. There was a lot of shame uh, and condemnation that I brought with me because of my past. But here was, here was the weird dynamic that I was navigating. Whenever I would share my testimony during the first few years I, got, I became a believer, there was a part of my testimony that almost seemed like instead of it giving glory to God, it was giving glory to me. And instead of emphasizing what Jesus did, it was all about who I was before I came to know Jesus. And I, I, I was, it was a highlight reel and not a testimony. And so there was parts of my past that I wanted to take credit for because I was proud of them. But at the same time, I kept struggling with condemnation. The condemnation for my past would not go away until one day I realized something. The same door that I was leaving open to allow credit to get through was the same door that condemnation was getting through. Right? Because when you take credit, the shadow side of it is when things go bad, you take the condemnation. And so it wasn't until I closed the door on my past altogether and my past became something that described me but not defined me that I was finally able to experience the freedom that I wanted. That's why this is so important. That's why we can't lose sight of this. Now, another, another way that you can tell if you are struggling with religious thinking is not just by how you view the law, but it's also by how you view your failures. See, when you forget your position in Christ, you start trying to earn it again. And here's the thing. There is nothing that topples your religious house of cards quicker than a sinful day or a sinful moment or bad traffic or a stub toe. There is nothing that topples that house of card quicker 
than sin. In those moments, instead of resting in the finished work of Jesus, you end up trying to deal with this uh, condemnation in a few ways. What some Christians do is they deny it. Here's what some Christians do. When, when, when they start feeling this condemnation, even though there shouldn't be any, they don't, they don't know that, but, but when they start feeling this condemnation, what some Christians do is they try to deny it. They, they, they try to ignore all the evidence. They try to deflect and sweep it under the rug. One of the songs that came out a few years ago uh, was by John Legend. It was called uh, Dance the Pain Away. It was this EDM song, and, and in the song, he says that he is feeling all these negative issues, all these negative feelings, and so he, in the song, he goes to the club in order to dance the pain away. Now, as dumb as that sounds, here's how we are just like him. Some of us, we might not dance the pain away, but we eat the pain away. We medicate the pain away. We lust the pain away. We video game the pain away. We sleep the pain away. So you might not dance the pain, but you are doing something with the pain. The problem with pain, the problem with condemnation is that condemnation ain't going anywhere. Once you're done doing whatever you're doing, trying to numb it, it's just sitting right there waiting for you to open up the door again. Some people, instead of denying, what they do is they deflect. So they pull an atom and they start blame shifting. They blame their spouse and their kids and the, the government and their, and, and it's everybody's fault but theirs. It's not me. Because if they admit that it's them, then their religious house of cards falls. Some people, instead of denying and deflecting, what they do is they defend themselves. Instead of Jesus being our advocate, we try to be our own lawyer. So when Satan shows up and tries to accuse us, which by the way, I don't know if you know this, that's actually the primary thing Satan does. The primary role of Satan is not to tempt you, it's to accuse you. And so when Satan shows up and tries to accuse you, the people who don't believe the gospel, what they do is they try to defend themselves. They try to prove their innocence against Satan. But here's what's so dangerous about Satan. Satan never, ever, ever tells you a full lie. He always tells you half-truths. He takes something that's partially true so that it's hard for you to see it, and then he makes you feel bad about it. But here's the thing, guys. If you understand the gospel that in Christ Jesus there is no condemnation, the next time Satan shows up, because Satan did that for a long time in my life, the next time Satan shows up and tries to condemn you, the next time Satan shows up and, and calls you a sinner, you know what you should do? Don't fight him. Don't debate him. Don't lawyer up. Agree with him. But like, you know what, bro? I am a sinner. You're right. I am a sinner. And that's why I need Jesus. So what if Satan in his attack becomes the very thing that brings you back to the gospel? Why are you defending yourself? That's the thing. Another thing that people do is instead of denying or deflecting or defending, they, they put themselves on detention. And here, here's what I mean by detention, right? Detention is, depending on how bad the sin you just committed is, if it's a Little sin, you take about a one-day detention. If it's, if, it's a, if it's a big sin, it's a three-day detention, right? And here's what I mean by detention. You, you walk around, and you're groveling, and you're discouraged, and your head is down, and you don't really read your Bible, and you don't pray because you know, you know God's mad at you. 
And then after a few days, you forget about it, and you can go back to life as normal. The problem with the tension is that you're actually, get this, trying to pay for a sin that Jesus has already paid for. You're actually trying to replace Jesus, and you're not believing the gospel. And the last thing that people do is they're defeated. Some deny it, some deflect it, some defend it, some put themselves under tension. And some of us, many of us, all of us, we just accept defeat. And we walk around defeat and we just accept that for the rest of our Christian lives, we are going to have this low-level, low-grade guilt that will never go away. And as a result, many Christians end up living like if Jesus never died. So the first symptom is deficient thinking. The, the second symptom is religious thinking. The, the, the third symptom of someone who is struggling with condemnation is, get this, idolatrous thinking. Where do I get that? Well, one of the things that stood out to me this week about the word mind, Paul brings up the word mind again and again and again in verses 5 through 8. One of the things that stood out to me about the word mind is that in the Greek, it carries the idea of not just your thoughts, but your desires. So in other words, that word mind there, it carries the idea of not just your head, what you think, but your heart, what you worship. So when Paul says in verse 5, for those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on things of the flesh, what he is saying there is that someone who lives according to the flesh will not just think earthly things, they will actually worship and desire earthly things. In other words, what he's saying is that people who live according to the flesh will find their ultimate hope, significance, and identity in the creation rather than in the creator. So one of the ways you can tell if you are falling into condemnation is when you start finding your ultimate hope, significance, and identity in something smaller than Jesus. So for example, I'll give, this happens all the time. I have, I, have Christians, I have a Christian who comes up to me and says, man, listen, I know that God has forgiven me, but I just can't forgive myself. Man, you know, I, I know that God has forgiven me, but that person, my spouse, my child, my parent, I know that God has forgiven me, but I just can't forgive myself. I know that God has forgiven me, but that, but that person hasn't forgiven me. Well, you know what's happening when you do that? You're actually falling back into the way of condemnation because you are finding your ultimate identity in something smaller than Jesus. When you say that, when you say, I know that God has forgiven me, but I can't forgive myself, what that means is, is that your opinion of you is more important than God's opinion of you. Have you ever thought of that? It means that the person who's on the throne of your heart is not Jesus, it's you. And so the reason why God's opinion doesn't matter is because God's not the Lord of your life. God's not on the throne of your heart. And so when we say, oh, it sounds really humble. I know God's forgiven me, but I just can't forgive myself. I know God's forgiven me, but, but, that, but that person hasn't forgiven me. When you say that, it sounds humble, but it's pride. It's idolatry. And you're finding your identity in something smaller than Jesus. Because what you should be saying is, man, if God's forgiven me, then who cares what anybody else thinks? That's the gospel. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 20, John writes this. When our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. But get this. The verse only works when you have God where he belongs. 
So, so John says, when our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. But if God is not on the throne of your heart, then God not condemning you doesn't matter. Because what your heart thinks is more important than what God thinks. It only works if God, and not you, and not your spouse, and not your boss, and not your parent, and not your child, it only works if God is the one seated on the throne of your heart. If there is someone else on the throne of your heart, whether it is you or someone else, then their verdict will determine if you are condemned or not. So during the prodigal series, one of the things I said was this. The sin that you can't forget is the same sin that God refuses to remember. But here's the thing. The only way that quote is good news is if it's if God's opinion carries more weight than your opinion. Because if it doesn't, it's not good news. So here's the question you have to ask yourself. Where am I looking for my justification? In my career? In my success? In my appearance? In my marriage? In my education? In my money? In my ministry? In my family? In my rules? See, the workaholic says, I will be justified by my work. The shopaholic says, I will be justified by my possessions. The codependent says, I will be justified by my significant other. So where do you find your justification? Well, I can tell you that wherever you find your justification, get this, it's also where you will find your condemnation. Wherever you are trying to justify yourself, that is the same place where your condemnation will come from. Why? Because whoever has the power to justify your existence will also have the power to condemn it. So, now that we've seen the reality of condemnation and now that we've seen the symptoms, I want to conclude this morning by looking at the removal, the removal of of condemnation. Let's finish the passage. Look what it says in verses 9 through 11. It says, you, however, are not in the flesh but in the spirit if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. And I love verse 11. It says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So hopefully by now, hopefully by this point, we can all agree that condemnation is a major, major struggle. Amen? So the question is, what can we do about it? Well, going back to the passage that I quoted at the beginning, Romans chapter 7, A lot of us feel like Paul right now in Romans 7 where he is so overwhelmed by his sin that he cries out, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? But what scholars point out about Romans 7, get this, is that in Romans 7, Paul is primarily using personal pronouns. In other words, over 19 times he uses phrases like I and me and my, I and me and my. That's all of Romans chapter 7. It's it's very internal. 
personal pronoun after personal pronoun after personal pronoun. But then all of a sudden, in Romans chapter 8, he switches from the internal focus to a vertical focus. And the question is, what changes between Romans 7 and Romans 8? What changes between one chapter to the other? Well, what changes is verse 25. Now, I intentionally did not read verse 25 to begin with because I was too busy trying to depress you still. But now I'm going to read it to you, okay? The, 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 what, what makes the transition between verse 24 and Romans 8 is verse 25. Look what it says in verse, I'm going to reread verse 24, and then I'm going to read verse 25. Verse 24 says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Then verse 25 says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Come on. Paul says that our only hope is not more rules, is not more effort, is not more legislation, is not more religion, but our one and only hope is Jesus Christ our Lord. And that's why he starts Romans 8 with therefore. A lot of people read right past the therefore. The reason why there's a therefore is he's going back to verse 25, and he says, look, even though the problem is bad, praise be to God that the solution is greater. And he says, therefore, in light of what Jesus did, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus is our only hope. See, the gospel helps us to overcome and remove condemnation by changing one very important thing. The gospel changes our residence. And you're like, our residence? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here's what I mean. The reason why there is no condemnation is because Christians have been given a new mailing address. We have been given a new position. We have been given a new residence. We have been given a new address. And our new residence, according to Paul, he says, is that we are in Christ Jesus. So the address has changed. The, the residence has changed. So, so when Satan comes along knocking, he's knocking on a different door now because I don't live over there anymore. I live in a different place now. Paul uses that phrase 87 times to describe Christians, in Christ, in Christ. Everyone thinks that the most common phrase for Christians is Christians. No, no, it's in Christ. Paul uses it way more to describe us than the word Christians. He is his favorite word to describe Christian people. Back in Romans chapter 5, Paul goes out of his way to explain that every human being is either in Adam or in Christ. In other words, all of us are affected and identified with either Adam or with Christ. But like we said earlier on when we were looking at John chapter 3, what we discovered is everyone uh, born is born by being in Adam. And as a result, we are all born uh, sinners by nature. In other words, what it means to be in Adam, it means that we have absorbed his nature, his curse, his punishment, and his condemnation. But in verse 3, it says that God sent his son as a sin offering as both our representative and our redeemer, not to condemn us, but don't miss this, but to condemn sin in the flesh. So praise be to God that Jesus didn't come to condemn us. He came to condemn sin in the flesh. Man, that's good news. 
And then again, you see Paul in Romans 5, he's unpacking the relationship between Adam and Jesus, and he gets so overwhelmed, just like he does in Romans 7, but for good news this time, not bad news. And in, in Romans 5, 17 through 19, Paul writes, for the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness, for all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. Verse 18, yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation. There's the Greek word there. Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone, but Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. Because one person, I love verse 19, because one person disobeyed God, many became sinners. But because one person obeyed God, many will be made righteous. So, 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 so get this, in Adam there is condemnation, but in Christ there is no condemnation. In Adam there is bondage. But in Christ, there is freedom. In Adam, there is sinfulness. But in Christ, there is righteousness. In Adam, there is anxiety. But in Christ, there is assurance. In Christ, the same God who made the demands came down to meet those demands. Come on, church. And that's why I love reading about the, the, all the benefits that come from being in Christ. If, if you do a survey of the New Testament and you read all the places where Paul uses that phrase, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, you, you start to look at it as a list and it's overwhelming all the things that we are given in Jesus. He says, in Christ we are not condemned. In Christ we are a new creation. In Christ we are more than conquerors. In Christ, we have been raised up and are seated with him in heavenly places. In Christ, we are all children of God. Get this. In Christ, it is no longer I who live, but him who lives in me. Come on. Come on. And that's why the gospel is superior to the law. Because in the gospel, you don't have to be righteous because he is your righteousness. You don't have to be perfect because he is your perfection. You don't have to justify yourself because he is your justification. You don't have to defend yourself because he is your advocate. The law might have the first word, but praise be to God that the gospel had the final word. Man, one of my favorite passages in all the Bible when it comes to combating condemnation is, is 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. In 1 John 1, 9, John writes, If we confess our sins, He, Jesus, He, God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But one of the things that stood out to me is that he describes God as faithful and just. Boom. Why just, though? Why, why, why doesn't he say, for he is faithful and loving? 
Why doesn't he say that he is faithful and gracious? Why doesn't he say that he is faithful and patient or faithful and kind? No, no. The word that he uses, and it's very specific, he uses the word just. Why does he use the word just? Well, the reason why he uses the word just is because since Jesus has already taken our place, for God to punish you again would be unjust. Think about that. The reason why God can't punish you again is because of double jeopardy. He can't, you can't pay for the same sin again. It would be unjust for God not to forgive you. Think about that. See, when I heard about Jesus being my advocate in heaven, I always thought that Jesus being my advocate meant that he was up there begging for me, for me to get another chance. Right? He's up there. He's like, I, I know it's the 450th time, Lord, but, but please give him another chance. He loves you. You know, you know he's trying. Come on, God, please. Can you please give him another chance? No, no, no. According to this theology, according to this doctrine, according to 1 John 1, 9, Jesus, as our faithful advocate, he isn't in heaven pleading for mercy. He is in heaven demanding justice. He's not pleading for mercy. He's demanding justice. What? That same John who wrote 1 John 1, 9, and in his gospel, John chapter 8, he tells us the story about the woman who was caught in adultery. And when you read it in the Greek, it means that she was actually caught in the act. And so when she is brought before Jesus by the religious leaders who want to judge her, who want to condemn her, there's a good chance that she is standing there completely naked, completely exposed. And they want to know, can they stone this woman, yes or no. And it says in the passage that Jesus gets down and he writes something on the ground. We, we never know what he does. But what some scholars say is that he actually writes the other nine commandments. She broke one of them, so he writes the other nine. He gets up and he says, hey, whoever's without sin can throw the first stone. And the passage says that from older to younger, youngest, they all walked away. Which means that older people are wiser than younger people is what that means. But, but, but get this, they walk away and, and the only person that's left is her and Jesus. And here's what the passage says. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? There's the Greek word. Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, this <laughs> crazy, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. So, so get this, guys. The only person who had the right to condemn her does not condemn her. But, 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 but don't, miss the, don't miss the balance here. You see, a liberal person, a person who doesn't believe in, 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 in the Bible, a liberal person would say, oh, oh, I don't condemn you because you didn't do anything wrong. There's no such thing as sin. A religious person would say, oh, no, no, I, I condemn you because you did everything wrong. But Jesus is neither religious nor irreligious. He is neither licentious or legalistic. Jesus has this balance. He says, neither do I condemn you, now go and sin no more. But here's the reason. The reason why Jesus doesn't condemn her is not because she doesn't deserve it. But the reason why Jesus doesn't condemn her is because one day he was going to be condemned for her. That's why. But that's not even the best part. It gets better. The best 
part is that Jesus responds to this woman, and when he says, neither do I condemn you, go and from now on sin no more, I need you to pay attention to the order here. Don't miss the order of what Jesus Christ says. I always thought that Jesus said to her, go on and sin no more, and then I won't condemn you. But that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, neither do I condemn you, now go and sin no more. In other words, he is giving her the indicative before the imperative. He is giving her the acceptance before the action. He is giving her the favor before the fruit. He is giving her the redemption before the requirement. He is giving her the pardon before the production. Don't miss that. Don't miss that. Jesus is looking at you right now and he's saying, neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. Man. Man, even though the problem is worse than we ever thought, praise be to God that the solution is greater than we ever could have imagined. Our condemnation is great. But praise be to God that his grace is greater. Let's pray. Father God, we we come before you this morning, and we are grateful that even though the bad news is bad, the, the good news is better. And right now, Lord, I want to pray for the people here in this room. There's only two types. If you're sitting here today and this is the first time you've ever really heard the gospel, maybe it's not the first time you've been to church, but it's the first time you've actually heard the gospel. I pray that today would be the day that you say, I want to follow Jesus. I want to be in relationship with him. On your listening guides, there was a a little card that you can rip out. And there's a section that says, today I choose to begin a relationship with Jesus. Fill that out. Turn it in on those black boxes in the back and let us know so that we can reach out to you, so we can pray for you. And, and if you need prayer, you come up here at the end and receive prayer. But, but maybe, maybe you're a believer here who, well, the reason why you're struggling with condemnation is because you have forgotten the gospel. Maybe this morning the Lord has reminded you again and so you need prayer for something completely different. Maybe God's calling you to be baptized. Maybe God's calling you to join a a life group. Maybe God's calling you to to serve. You can also let us know on this card. Regardless of where you are this morning, I just pray that you would take a step in some direction because there's no way that the gospel can be that good and us not to respond in some way. And so, Jesus, I pray for all these people now. Father, we thank you that we have all that we need, not in us, but in you. Be with us, we pray. And all God's people said...